When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. He was the king of the high street, the emperor of the emporium, the bringer of high fashion to the grateful masses. He's Sir Philip Green, and he's really a colossus, riding high, fingers in so many pies, from politics to showbiz to business to retail. He is at the centre of so many different things, and he's a hugely powerful, influential figure. From buying low and selling high in the rag trade, Sir Philip Green became a retail billionaire. And then it all came crashing down. There are stories starting to emerge, including one that we wrote, that he was thinking about selling BHS. And with hindsight, that was the first inkling, the first sign of a crack in the fissures that would eventually bring down the entire empire. So what went so right for Green? What went so wrong? And what will he do now? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm David Aronovich. Today... The Rise and Fall of Sir Philip Green. People in the industry want to talk, but there is a nuance. They want to talk on their terms. Oliver Shah is the Sunday Times business editor and the author of Damaged Goods, the inside story of Sir Philip Green, the collapse of BHS and the death of the high street. Oliver first came into contact with Sir Philip Green while he was the paper's retail correspondent. You need contacts to get stories and you need people who are well placed to explain what's happening to you and give you the inside track. But you can then become captive of those contacts quite easily and you can end up writing for your contacts or writing for the specific city or business audience. One of Oliver's best and most exotic contacts for almost a decade was a man who it now seems is going out of business. Staff prepared Topshop branches to reopen on Wednesday. Their employer Arcadia confirmed it was entering administration. The Arcadia Group is the parent company of Topshop, most notably. That's the flagship brand, the Jewel in the Crown. And there are other brands like Dorothy Perkins, Evans, Wallace, Miss Selfridge, all slightly tired, faded high street chains that had lost their mojo or raison d'etre or however you want to put it quite some time ago and had been limping along really losing ground to the competition and to the internet most importantly until coronavirus really finished them off. Now despite the fact that these are rather kind of fading companies and so on and what they're doing feels rather old-fashioned is it still a shock that they should go down? You often see with companies that have been struggling for a while people don't notice them when they're ailing. 
They fade into the background and they become afterthoughts. Their lives move on. But when the administration gets announced, it is still a bit of a moment. Going into administration is what happens when a company's insolvent bust, essentially, and put in the hands of administrators to try and protect its assets. And it, it summarises what people already knew, but it becomes quite emotional. Um, it marks the passage of time. So Topshop, a lot of people remember for the um, early noughties when it was the It brand, the first high street chain that really parlayed catwalk fashion onto high streets and towns around the UK. Topshop's Fashion Week shows became one of the must-see, must-be-seen events attracting the likes of Vogue editor Anna Winter. Special position in British fashion that is very inexpensive, well-priced clothes for young girls, very much a street culture. It's a quintessentially British brand. So what's the wider impact of the collapse of the company and its brands on, on the market? It's another blow for the high street. We've seen a load of companies go under in the past few years, and the COVID pandemic has exacerbated the pressure that was already there. You're going to see a lot more empty shops. And for Sir Philip Green, obviously, it's a big moment. It's the end, really, of the high street empire he's been building ever since he left school. Oliver first met Sir Philip when he was the Sunday Times retail correspondent, a rite of passage encounter for rookies new to the role. If you rewind in time to the development of the Sunday Times business section, it was really all about explaining stories through big people, big personalities, and few came bigger, more colourful, bolder, brasher, more controversial than Philip Green. The Sunday Times had long been Philip Green's favourite paper. He was not only great copy in that he was fun to write about, but he was a huge source of stories and scoops and intel and insights and all those kind of things that business journalists need to give them an edge on the competition and bring new stories to readers. Philip Green was kind of handed down from business editor to business editor like an ornamental vase or a family heirloom with the advice that you, know, you treat him well, carry him carefully and he will look after you. It was still very much that way when I took over as retail correspondent. It must have been around 2012, 2013. And it was tradition when you became retail correspondent at the Sunday Times that your first call to anyone in the industry to introduce yourself, like a mafia gesture of respect, was not to Tesco or M&S or any of the big chains, but to Philip Green. Do you remember that call? Yeah, very much so. I, um, it's one of those things that sticks with you. Someone gave me his number. I dialed the number and being however old I was, late 20s, slightly nervous and tried to kind of dial down the plumbiness a bit. He answered in the way he usually does, kind of monosyllabic. And I said who I was, and there was a slight pause. And he said, well, you better come and see me, hadn't you? I went over to Arcadia's headquarters, just north of Oxford Street. I was kept waiting for the requisite period of time and then ushered into a room which was full of black and white photos of him and Kate Moss in various poses and places, like a married couple. You can forget a bit now because all we've seen of him for the last few years is ranting and shouting at TV cameras and being rude to people. But um, he can be immensely charming and persuasive and quite beguiling when he wants to be. He walked in and sort of we had a conversation. He asked about where I came from, who I was, that kind of thing. He said to me, so who, who are you having trouble getting hold of? I gave him a list of a few names of chairmen and CEOs and bankers in retail who weren't um, taking my calls or presenting themselves to meet me. And um, he said, right, watch this. And he got his Nokia brick phone out and started dialing all these numbers of the great and the good. 
and person after person that he rang them and he was kind of looking at me with a beady twinkle in his eye enjoying the reaction on my face as he spoke to them all and said I've got the new Sunday Times retail man here you're going to meet them <laughs> he hung up and we said goodbye and he said he'd really enjoyed watching the effect it had on me and he said don't forget your uncle Philip and that was my introduction to the world of Philip Green's quid pro quo where nothing is a, not a transaction Now, you once or twice actually had rather awkward conversations with him on the phone, which weren't quite so funny. When you're a young reporter and the billionaire calls you directly and there are no PR people involved, no intermediaries, and this person claims to know your editor and their editor and that editor's boss and the boss's boss... And they're on the phone threatening to throw you out of a window or have you fed the dogs or um, to come around and assault you. Even if you know it's Mickey Mouse uh, aggression or Guy Ritchie gangster language, it's very hard not to have the hairs on your neck rise a bit and to have your heart beating faster and have a bit of adrenaline pumping around you because it's quite an um, intimidating thing. And when Green does lose his temper, he can be absolutely furious. And one of the most effective things he does is go from naught to 100 and back to naught again, leaving you bewildered. When he becomes a little more charming and uh, chummy, suddenly you want to do whatever he asks. And I think he's used that on people again and again, from bankers <laughs> to journalists to, to people in retail. He will beat them up, beat them bloody, suddenly switch to being their mate, and they'll do whatever he wants. And it's been a very effective um, crowd management tool for many years. Let's take us back a bit now to how he started and where he came from and the backstory as you learned it to be. People think of him as a wheeler dealer, but he came from relatively middle-class stock. His parents lived in Croydon, where he was born. His mum ran a chain of laundrettes. His dad was involved in cars. And the family then moved to a place called Bancroft Avenue in Hampstead Garden suburb. He went to a, an expensive school called Carmel College in Oxfordshire, which is no longer there. He was expelled at the age of 17 and went to a grammar school in North London. He was not an academic kid at school, but he proved to be very, very energetic when he left. He started working for a shoe wholesaler. Uh, he left there, became uh, what's known as a job buyer, which is someone who buys knockoff stock uh, from companies that have gone bust or have ordered too much stock. And then that, that job buyer flogs them on market stalls or through wholesale channels. And um, it's a good job for someone who's got a knack for ducking and diving, wheeling and dealing. And that's really where he perfected his trader's patter. Graduating from wheeler dealing in the early 80s, Green started running discount designer stores, including one in London's upmarket Mayfair called Bond Street Bandit. Not somewhere I shopped, I confess. There are some lovely, lovely black and white pictures of him uh, with his bouffant hair and his sharp suits in those days. And he annoyed lots of brands like Yves Saint Laurent by 
selling last season's goods in the days, obviously, way, way before the internet, before TK Maxx and before any other way of getting hold of cheap designer gear. He was there, made quite a name for himself. Green's first big move was when he bought shares in the menswear retailer Amber Day and was installed as the company's chief executive. The company had been regarded as rather run down, but with Green at the helm, that sense of fading glory wouldn't last long. And then began a roller coaster few years of results, performance, plaudits in the press, growing public profile, but massive controversy, lots of question marks over governance, the way it was being run, and ultimately he was ousted from there in very contentious circumstances. He was hugely aggrieved at the way he was treated, and that gave him a real bee in the bonnet about the city, posh people mounting their whispering campaigns against people and bankers, and it gave him a real animus against what he perceived to be the business establishment and a real burning desire to prove them wrong, to prove that he can make money. So he felt that he was a real entrepreneur, I mean, in the classic sense, which is that he'd spotted a gap in the market and he'd spotted a way of doing business and you had to be quick-witted to get there. And then there were all these other types who were essentially trying to stop you and governance you out of what you were trying to do. He felt he was the true buccaneering, entrepreneurial bloke who could read where trends were going to go, who knew the retail market, knew how to buy and sell, could do everything in the company better than whoever was allotted to that particular role. And he felt that the squares in the city, the corporate governance, box tickers, the shareholders, the analysts, most of the journalists who were pesky, intrusive, didn't understand business, didn't like wealth, uh, constrained his ability to do what he was doing. And he left aged 40, feeling very bitter, battered and bruised at the way he'd been treated running this public company. And he determined from then on, everything he would do would be through private companies. He would do it for himself. He would make money for himself. He wouldn't make money for the city or for shareholders. And he wouldn't listen to the doubters, the naysayers, the analysts, the brokers, the journalists, people who didn't get what making money was about. And the thing that he had spotted, was it? Was it that ordinary people wanted to think that they were wearing fashion? The funny thing with Philip Green is... He saw himself as a great tastemaker, and that was always part of the myth. And um, it was written up by journalistic admirers that he was great at reading trends. He was a much better buyer and seller, really, as in he knew how to buy things cheap and sell them at a higher price. He was never particularly a fashionable guy, as you might glean when you look at his suits. But he's a great buyer and seller and a trader. That was always really how he made money. It was deals. What really motivated Sir Philip Green? Money? Success? The deal? Or simply proving himself to a sceptical world? Green, in many ways, is a classic entrepreneur and a classic person who has in their DNA what's required uh, to get rich and get rich quite quick. So he had the combination of a very, very driving, ambitious mother, uh, a father who died young of a heart attack when Philip Green was young, he was insecure, very, very bright, hugely numerate, really good at doing deals, negotiating, good at totting up numbers in his head. And he had that burning desire to prove people wrong, to make his mum proud, uh, to live up to her expectations of him, to be the man of the family, which his dad couldn't be since he died so young. So what represents the peak of Philip Green's success? If you work forward very quickly from the Amber Day ousting in the early 90s, 
Uh, he spent a few years in the wilderness. He then came back with a deal for Olympus Sports, which he bought and flipped for a profit. He then broke up Sears with the Barclay Brothers, broke that up at a huge profit. Year 2000, he buys BHS, British Home Stores, after having lost out on a first hostile bid for Marks & Spencer, which shows you how ambitious he is. He then buys Arcadia in 2002, which brings him Topshop. He then tries to buy Marks & Spencer again in 2004 in a hugely rancorous, high-profile, hostile takeover, which he narrowly, narrowly loses. After losing that battle, he pays his wife the $1.2 billion tax-free dividend from Arcadia, which is a huge two fingers to the city and M&S for having thwarted him. The £1.2 billion dividend Sir Philip paid himself in 2005 was the biggest paycheck in British corporate history. And whenever the subject of Sir Philip is raised, and so is his monster dividend. And at that point, really, pre-2007, he's at the peak of his powers. He's got Topshop. He's riding high. The year 2006, he does the Cape Moss collaboration. And um, he's fated everywhere in the retail industry, in the press, Philip Green, the retail magnate, the billionaire, he's knighted by Tony Blair, and he's Sir Philip Green, and he's really a colossus riding high, fingers in so many pies, from politics to showbiz, where he's becoming mates with Simon Cowell, to business, to retail. He is at the centre of so many different things, and he's a hugely powerful, influential figure. And then, we'll come to and then in just a minute, But first, if you like a deal, I wanted to let you know that to enjoy more remarkable stories like Oliver's reporting on retail magnets such as Sir Philip Green, you can subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times today and get one month free. Search thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. 
Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. An avalanche starts with tiny, barely perceptible movements. And so did the fall of green. So 2006, Jane Shepperson, who has really been the creative genius behind Topshop's Everyman Appeal, is in effect ousted when he partners with Kate Moss. She doesn't want to do the Kate Moss deal. Green does. Shepperson's out and Kate Moss is in. And now it's Philip Green's Topshop, not Jane Shepperson's Topshop. In his pomp, a fashion emperor who dominated the high street and didn't mind flaunting the vast wealth it brought him. Lavish parties attended by the rich, powerful and famous. And he starts to see himself as a celebrity and he starts to be seduced by the sirens of celebrity and publicity and doing endless interviews. He takes his eye off the ball a bit. The online world is coming through. ASOS is growing. Green discounts that. He thinks everyone's still going to always want to have the theatre and the magic and the fun of going into stores. ASOS is an online retailer which started off by selling versions of clothing and accessories seen on film and television. No, me neither. I think around 2007, ASOS's total sales are still smaller than the Oxford Street top shop alone. You can see why he felt quite comfortable that that pattern was going to continue. The financial crisis knocks out many other retailers. Woolworths goes bust and loads of Icelandic-owned brands go bust. Green sails through that. 2012, he does a deal with a private equity firm called Leonard Green in the US, where he sells a quarter of Topshop at a valuation of $2 billion in total. Hi, this is Sharon Klatt with New York Magazine. We're here at the Topshop opening. The line is around the block. Kate Moss is going to be here. It's crazy. You can see that his empire is still hugely valuable in 2012. In the background, BHS is rotting away and it starts to bleed money. But the press don't really take notice because um, there's so much glitz to concentrate on. So no one really sees the impending disaster coming. Except the Sunday Times, of course, which must have perceived it beginning to happen. The Sunday Times starts to notice it around 2014. And there are stories um, starting to emerge, including one that we wrote, that he was thinking about selling BHS. And with hindsight, that was the first inkling, the first sign of a crack in the fissures that would eventually bring down the entire empire. It wasn't the fact of the sale, it was the nature of the sale that was to wreck Green's reputation. One of the best-known retailers in this country, a knight of the realm, no less, has been accused of recklessly selling BHS, even though it's helped to make him a multiple billionaire. Overnight, a man fated as one of our greatest entrepreneurs has been regarded as a bit of a pariah. The Green reputation started to unravel in 2015 when we heard that he was selling BHS and he sold it for one pound to a guy called Dominic Chappelle. Other papers reported it fairly straightly and we dug into who Dominic Chappelle was and we found he was a serial bankrupt with a history of basically fraud allegations behind him. Um, and we started reporting this and Green started going nuts and calling us and threatening to sue, threatening to have me and the editor beaten up and this kind of stuff being very, very aggressive. And as things went on, we found out that not only had he sold this dying store chain for a pound to a ne'er-do-well, 
it had a £500 million hole in pension fund, which he'd also sold. It became very, very obvious to us that this sale was an attempt to avoid his liabilities. When the whole thing went bust a year later and all the calls for him to lose his knighthood began, that's really when the unravelling of Green's reputation began because rather than make good the hole in the pension fund, he tried to fight it for months. There was shouting, swearing, threats, a sort of national pantomime almost where he was the the bad figure and various people like us and Frank Field and the parliamentary select committees were running after him trying to get the money back for pensioners. And in the end, he did pay £363 million towards the 600 million ish hole in the fund. But um, this was nine months after the scandal erupted and by then the damage had been done. Now, one of the things we've got used to in recent times, not least with the most recent slew of companies having problems, is the idea that the retail scene has changed markedly and that the internet has really done most of this. Was there a moment when Philip Green could have said to himself, I'm being told that this is the way things are going to go, I'm going to begin to react to it and missed it? Or was it actually just something that happened to the whole industry? It, yes, it did happen to the whole industry. Yes, some reacted quicker. Green, I've described as an analog man in an increasingly digital world, and he wasn't really interested in digitizing his businesses. He didn't have the patience for that kind of investment. There's also the, the fact that Green was a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant buyer of assets. He knew when to swoop, when things were distressed, when they were cheap, uh, when the market was low, when there was a weak management team he could negotiate with. He bought BHS and Arcadia, and before them, Sears, very, very cheap. And everyone knows in dealmaking, to do a good deal, the most important thing is to buy low. He was not a good seller. He had a chance to sell BHS, amazingly, for about a billion pounds pre the financial crisis. He could have sold Topshop for many more billions if he'd wanted to get out. But part of the reason he didn't is this insecurity. And he hated the idea of being depicted as an asset stripper, as a takeover merchant only. He wanted to become a great retailer in the mould of a Simon Marks of M&S, one of these great towering figures on the high street. He wanted to be Philip Green, the high street tycoon. He did not want to be Philip Green, the asset stripper, the deal maker, the guy who buys and sells. And so he refused to sell BHS. It would have killed him to see anyone else buy it and make a bigger success of it than him. Ditto Arcadia. He wouldn't even sell the weaker brands because he didn't want his empire to get smaller. So yes, he did miss the digitization of retail, but he also missed plenty of chances to sell. That's really interesting because it suggests on the one hand a kind of personal grandiloquence, which is this is the good thing to do for your own kind of personal fortune, your kind of business fortunes, which is to sell when the selling is good. But he also doesn't do the other thing, which is to optimise the capacity of his companies to survive in the new retail environment. He doesn't do that either. Was there a moment when anybody advised him, when he sat down with anybody and they said, listen, you should do this, that, and the other, etc. And he said, no, I'm not having any of that. When I was doing the book, one of the most interesting interviews I had was, was with one of his old old friends who's not really a business guy, but someone who's observed him. And we talked about the infamous 1.2 billion dividend in 2005. And this person said, that dividend destroyed Philip in more ways than anyone will ever understand. It destroyed his judgment. It destroyed his sense of context. And it made him unable to listen to anyone else because... He'd been shunned as he saw it by the city. He'd been seen as not good enough. He now had more money than any of those people. Many, many, many multiples of the wealth they would have in their lifetime. And he got that by ignoring them. So he refused to listen to advice or naysayers after that point, really. After 2005, 
He increasingly wouldn't listen to wise people whispering in his ear. There was no consigliere. There was no influential chairman who could take him to one side and say, how about this? The more influential people inside Topshop or Arcadia, like Jane Shepperson, were pushed out because they were awkward. It became the court of King Philip, an echo chamber. And you do have to admire how he got there because no one would have betted on him in the mid-90s after he'd been kicked out of Amber Day. But he defied them all and got to that point. And so he was not going to stop them. Now, looking at him now, do you think he wants all that back? Or do you think he's giving up? It's a genuinely sad ending because if you know Philip in the way that I've come to know him over the years, the money was hugely important and still is. And he's to many degrees blinded by it and wouldn't give it back. But he was so enraptured with his own self-image and so in love with the press and the constant echoing of everything he said and his own reputation. I remember writing a small picture story about him once in Happier Times, a small picture caption. He must have called me four or five times to try and micromanage it in the course of an afternoon. He was immensely, immensely interested in his own image. And so the extent that he's fallen, it will on some level totally uh, humiliate him or it'll totally kill him to see how far he has fallen from that untouchable peak. But I suppose what I'm asking really is, there are some people who say, I'll be back. It's like, you know, Donald Trump, I'm going to run in 2024. I've not lost. But there's another way of looking at this, which is, I'm tired. I've been through this. There's no obvious way back. Uh, Whatever it is, I've still got quite a lot of money, really, one way or another. I can live very comfortably the rest of my life. You won't have, as Richard Nixon says, you won't have Philip Green to kick around anymore. There is an air of resignation about him now, which no one has seen before. He was always so ferociously full of self-belief and so driven and so full of hunger that after previous mishaps or humiliations like Amber Day, you never would have betted against him or you shouldn't have betted against him because he came back from hardship or from misfortune again and again. And this time, after BHS, with the pension scandal there, after the alleged Me Too scandal, in 2018, and now after the collapse of Arcadia with another big hole in the pension, you sense that the fight has gone out of him and the battering he's had in the press, I think has worn him down quite a lot. It's quite telling that he's stopped answering his phone recently to journalists. In the past, he never would, even during these crises. And this time around, he's not. You just get a sense that some of the fighters gone out of him. Where are you from? I'm sorry, you guys. This is the first time the billionaire has been seen in public since allegations surfaced this week. Will you respond to those who made accusations, Sir Philip? Can you go away? Start to really annoy me. Go away. In 2018, the Daily Telegraph alleged that Sir Philip Green had used sexually inappropriate and racist language to employees and had bullied and inappropriately engaged with staff at Arcadia's HQ in London and in his stores across the world. The allegations have never been heard in court and Green continues to deny them. But they were so toxic that he exiled himself seemingly for good. He's not been back in the UK, as far as I know, since the alleged Me Too scandal in 2018. Uh, He's mostly lived on Lionheart, the boat, and Monaco. What about you and him? Are you going to keep in touch with Uncle Philip? It seems not at the moment. We haven't spoken for a little while. I forget when we lasted. I think it was when the Sunday Times sent a photographer down to Monaco, when he just furloughed a load of staff and found him browsing for a new yacht or appearing to browse for a new yacht. I spoke to him that week before the publication and the story went out, furlough Phil, swallows his woe in Monaco looking for a yacht and um, we haven't spoken since then. There was a fairly explicit text after that. Who knows really what he does next, but you do sense that he's 
withdrawing from from life in the UK and withdrawing from dealing with the press and maybe he'll decide he's had enough of it all and he can go and enjoy his money sailing around the Med and around the US. Does he leave a big hole on the high street, him and his companies, or will it just fairly rapidly close back over him and it will be as if he never was? In the personal sense, he will leave a hole. I mean, he's been a defining character of retail over the past three decades. He's been a constant and he's been the godfather up in the clouds, pulling the strings in so many different situations and so many fingers and so many pies. And his influence stretching across so many different companies and operators that um, part of the retail landscape will have changed forever. And I think it's part of a bigger shift in business away from individuals towards bigger corporations. I mean, you see it in different industries. Um, individual tycoons are fewer and further farther apart than they were before because to succeed these days, you really need global corporations with huge amounts of cash and the resources to trade across different countries. And individuals can do that less and less. Um, so the Amazons of the world take over and the Philip Greens of the world become fewer. And um, there is something sad about that, at least journalistically. The business world gets less colourful and less personality-driven and more institutional and corporate. Philip Green was the absolute epitome of that sole trader, tycoon, individual, one man up on the mountain deciding everything. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, David Aronovich, and my guest, business editor for The Sunday Times, Oliver Shah. And you can read more of Oliver's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print on Sundays. The producer was Edward Drummond. The executive producer is Poppy Damon, and sound design was by Carla Patella. If you have a story you think we should be covering, an idea for a future episode, or thoughts on what you've just heard, you can send us an email by writing to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. See you again soon. Subscribe today and get one month free at thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Want truly hydrated skin? Meet Osea's Body Care Breakthrough, Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER.